with so many options, which optics do you choose? Marcy is an expert with information for you to use. Thank you for tuning in to Hannah and Eric Go Birding, a podcast by birders for birders. I'm Hannah, and he's Eric. And we created this podcast to share our adventures, sometimes misadventures, and opinions that we have on different birding topics. We're definitely not experts, and anything that we discuss that might be controversial, we want you to remember their own opinions, and they might be different from yours. Do you like how I tried to mix you up by accidentally putting typos in that? I did, yeah. I appreciated that. <laughs> Made me have to think a little harder. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'm really excited about this this episode uh, that we'll bring to you guys in a few minutes because yeah. it's, it's a topic that we get asked about a lot. Oh, yeah. And I feel like I'm not that super knowledgeable on optics. But we know somebody who is, which is, you know, one of the cool things that I really enjoy about the podcast is being able to bring in experts about certain fields to to really give you the information about it. And, you know, as we've said before, demystify some of the facets of the birding world. Yeah, because we're not experts. We don't we don't we don't know the ins and outs of every single possible thing. But uh, the podcast has given us a chance to get around and get to know some of the experts that do know lots (laughs) and lots of things about um, some of the niche topics that uh that you guys all might want to know about and what we want to know about too. So anyways, um, before we get into that, we just want to give a shout out to one of our friends, Birding with Greg, who came to uh, Cannon Beach and visited with us for a day or so yeah. to come out and see the puffins. Yeah, he's now a three-stater. We saw we met him uh, originally down in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas. Uh, we met up with him in Minnesota when we went to Zach Sim Bog. And yep, now, he guided us around Zach Sim. Yeah, he's, he's a fantastic guide up in that area. And then uh, we... Met him again at our hotel <laughs> in Cannon Beach. Tell him where the puffins are and point, pointed out different places that he can go to get some of his targets. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, and I've really enjoyed uh, doing the puffin walks that we've had at back home in Cannon Beach um, when we've done those because, you know, it just it, it's fun to get out there for us to see them, mm-hmm. you know, but like we get to see puffins a lot. And so it's even more fun to be able to show people puffins, especially when they're like, oh, I didn't see them. And then we uh, take them out and it's like, yeah, I got you the bird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So many people come out and they're there in the summer. They're there every single day. You can see the rain or shine, bad weather, good weather, lots of people, high tide, low tide, doesn't matter. They're they're out there. Um, just not everyone knows exactly where to look for him up on the rock and it's it's always disappointing when we see people are like oh well i went out there but i didn't see him and it's like no you should have told us we could have gone with you we (laughs) really want people to see these um so anyways uh the next thing we wanted to mention was that national audubon society has a new campaign about birdsong yeah which is really exciting um it's called for the birds the birdsong project and it's a historic and unprecedented outpouring of creativity by more than 220 Music artists, actors, literary figures, and visual artists coming together to celebrate the joy birds bring to our lives and elevate the message they have about the environmental threats we all face. Um, it's a really exciting compilation of all of these artists that have come together that I mentioned, and then it's being released um, periodically. So each month there's another volume coming out, and it started in May. So uh, we definitely encourage you to check it out. We'll put it in the show notes yeah. so you can listen in to some of the tracks. There's dozens of tracks on this thing. It's, I honestly it's haven't super had cool. A, I haven't had a chance to listen to any of them yet, and I am so excited. Some some of these names that are in there are pretty exciting for me. I mean, there's Jeff Goldblum. I mean, <laughs> I mean, who what what who else? When you think of music, who do you think of? I think of Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> I think of that guy from Star Trek. 
William Shatner. Shatner. Yeah, he went, yeah. You, you, well, is is he listed? I don't think so. Oh man, <laughs> I would absolutely, I would, I would lose my mind if there was a William Shatner track in here. <laughs> but anyways, it's all it's all about birds and bird conservation and um, bringing awareness to all the all the problems that they face. So it's super exciting, and I can't wait to listen to the beginning of this and listen throughout the summer. Um, I think they're releasing them all the way through into the fall, right? September, yeah. September, yeah. So it's gonna be. It's going to be a good, it's going to be a good summer for music. It's going to be the soundtrack of the summer. Soundtrack of the summer. (laughs) So moving on, we didn't have any new reviews for this episode, but thank you to everyone who has reviewed and rated us in the past. We always appreciate that. Yeah. So also we, Hannah had an episode come out um, this last week. Um, Who'd you interview this this week, Hannah? Um, I interviewed our friend Whitney Lanfranco, who is the Leica Sporting Optics representative. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's actually kind of timely since we're talking about optics today. That that is (laughs) rather fortuitous. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, the cocktail for that was, I'm calling it Feather of the Red Knot. Feather of the Red Knot. Yeah. (laughs) Like hair of the dog. dog. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Birds don't have hair. They have feathers. (laughs) They have Feather of the Red Knot. All right. Um, so besides that, we're headed to Global Bird Fair, you know, just shout, give us a shout out if you're going to be there also. We'd love to meet some other folks when we're over there. We're looking for puffins, Atlantic puffins Atlantic when puffins. we get there. And also dunnicks are like 38% and on raz- our target list. And razor bills. And razor bills, yeah. Right. So we, we, we have a handful of uh, species. Like, I don't think we're going to get a ton of lifers. No. But, um, but Atlantic puffin's a big one, razor bill, dunnick. Those, I think we talked. All be exciting. I think we talked about being excited if we get like ten to fifteen lifers. Oh, I would be. I'd be happy just getting one. But. <laughs> <laughs> Even if I don't get a lifer, if we get some lifer people, we meet some cool people. That'd be that'd be good. Yeah, seriously, it'll be fun to see a different part of the of the UK since yeah. we've really only been to London. Yeah, the one time. Yeah. <laughs> well, you've been there a couple times. No, I've only been. To oh, London you've only once. been once. Yeah. Okay. But we'll go to Amsterdam, and I've been there, and you haven't been. Yeah, that's true. So hit us up if you know of any good spots in Amsterdam that we should check out, because I've only been to the red light district. <laughs> I, I never went birding there. So. so any birding spots or fun things to do in Amsterdam um, would be appreciated. So our last little bit of news is announcing this month's Bird Nerd giveaway. So we have a package of stuff that we were able to pick up from the Spring Chirp Birding Festival, um, courtesy of the Valley Nature Center, who yeah. puts that on. And we'll talk more about the Spring Chirp Birding Festival in the next episode, I believe. Um, but it's down in Westlaco, Texas, and it was a few weeks ago at the beginning of, or at the end of April, beginning of May. Mm-hmm. So since this episode is going to be all about optics, we thought that the best way to frame this giveaway is to ask everyone a question about optics. So um, in order to enter to win this package um, of the spring chirp things that we have, um, email us, message us on social media, or just in general get in contact with us um, and tell us what your dream optic is, binocular scope, whatever it is. Maybe you already own it. Maybe you dream of buying it one day. But um, just send send us a message of what it is and maybe why, why you want it. Um, or why you bought it. Why you like it. Why you like it. Um, enter by June 13th um, in order to be entered into our random draw. Um, the winner will be announced on our episode that comes out on the 16th. Okay, so now into the meat. So we have a really awesome interview. Um, we sat down um, with uh, Marcy from Lancy and Sky, spent a 
I think we were probably over two hours um, talking with her. Um, we we cut cut it all the way down to this little um, less than an hour clip for you. So Marcy is from Lancian Sky, which is an optics vendor out of Houston, Texas. Um, and then you can see her and her other representatives at various festivals like we've seen her at Rio Grande Valley and San Diego Bird Festival. And we really attempted to get as much information as possible about choosing your next or first pair of optics or binoculars or scope or whatever you're going to buy, how to troubleshoot any problems with them, and then new and innovative ways to use optics. And maybe even learn some fun facts to bust out at the next Rare Bird Stakeout. Yeah. So, I mean... They're, they're going to be some optics facts, and so it's it's going to be kind of niche, so you're not going to be able to bust them out of Thanksgiving. But, <laughs> maybe uh, you can. Maybe you can. Maybe you can just say, you know what? I am telling Aunt Greta all about the vortex whatever. <laughs> Poor Aunt Greta. <laughs> uh, but Pro- Mar- probably more representative at a rare bird, better at a rare bird stakeout, but I mean, it works at Thanksgiving too. But, you know, Marcy is just so full of facts and information. Um, it was just a, a great joy for us to sit down and chat with her. So please enjoy this conversation with Marcy. Well, so we're so happy to have uh, Marcy here with us from Lancy and Sky. Marcy, would you please tell everyone about yourself? Absolutely. Hi, it's great to be here. I'm Marcy Heisinger, and I'm the president of an optics company in Houston, Texas called Land, Sea, and Sky. And uh, what we do at Land, Sea, and Sky is sell and service all kinds of optics. Um, So for the purpose of our conversation today, we'll be talking about binoculars and spotting scopes primarily. Um, We also do other kinds of optics, microscopes, um, telescopes for astronomy, things of that nature. Um, Once you understand and can repair one optical train, it's really easy to understand and repair other optical trains. Um, And so that, you know, that that's why we, we have multiple uh, segments there. Yeah, and you guys have some really cool gear, too. We first met you all in uh, the Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival a couple years ago mm-hmm. when there was a evening event at um, some person's property, and we went along, you know, as, as leaders. Le- leaders slash drivers. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we were doing stargazing as part of the birding festival, and that was just, that was so cool to see all the different telescopes you all had, and we were digiscoping the moon for people. That was really, that was a lot of fun. So I think that's something that a lot of folks don't really consider when they're looking at optics is that, you know, they're great for birds, but they're also great for a lot of other things, too. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because people come into the shop all the time looking for a quote unquote telescope. And the first question I ask is, what's the primary use? Is it terrestrial or astronomical? Because there is some overlap. Um, The tricky part about using a telescope that's designed for astronomy is depending on the style, oftentimes the picture or the view is either backwards or upside down or both. Because as I'm looking at the moon, it doesn't really matter who's to say which way is up. but uh, obviously for terrestrial viewing, that can be a little confusing, especially if you're trying to follow a bird or animal. Um, and then the other thing I, I wanna just mention about that duplicate use is both binoculars and spotting scopes are awesome multifunctional tools. So while today's purpose and the purpose that I most often use my binoculars you know, are, are, is for birding, um, they're also really awesome for moon and planets. Um, even with my birding binoculars on a clear night, I can see the Galilean moons of Jupiter. Um, if Jupiter happens to be up, 
um, with spotting scopes. Um, and you may have seen it that night uh, that we were out there in, in, in the Harlingen area. Um, if Saturn is up, you can see not a, a very small Saturn, right? But you can still mm -hmm. get that kind of, um, you know, the effect of Saturn in the rings. Um, so it's really fun to, to think a little out of the box um, and take those binoculars to uh, a concert or a sporting event or, you know, outside <laughs> under the night skies, just a really great additional use for your bins. Yeah, any, anything that's really far away you want to see up close <laughs> or up closer. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. We're just circling back to the opera glasses, you know, yeah. that Birding started off with using, <laughs> using your very high powered binoculars for look, watching the opera. For watching the opera. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Obviously, we had you on to talk all about uh, binoculars, scopes and other birding optics. Um, so there's a lot of things that when you are looking at binoculars or you're looking at scopes that people may not understand, like some of the a lot of the numbers that are on there. So like the eight by 42, the 10 by 10 million, all, all, all those numbers that are just all over binoculars. Can you kind of explain what uh, what those numbers mean and then what makes those numbers good for a pair of binoculars or a scope? Yes, absolutely. So um, most birders use a binocular that has the numbers on it 8x42. And so mm -hmm. let's talk about that first number, the 8 by or 8x is really the magnification, also called the power of the binocular. As I hold those binoculars to my eyes and look at a bird, that bird is going to appear eight times closer than with the naked eye. So that's the first bit. And that's critical. And we'll talk about the variation in that here in a moment. But, but 8x power or magnification, that bird should appear eight times closer than with the naked eye. The second number is important too. In this case, it's a 42, 8 by 42. And the 42 is um, indicative of the the diameter of the objective lens in millimeters. So as I'm holding those binoculars up to my eyes and looking at the bird, the side of the binocular that's closest to the bird with the largest glass lens there at the end of the binocular, that's what we call the objective lens. Um, the bigger, the better, right? Because the bigger that lens is, the more light and color come down that dark barrel to my eye and the better my brain can make out detail but it's kind of the law of diminishing returns. As it gets larger, it might go from 42 millimeters to 50 millimeters and even larger. The whole footprint of the binocular becomes larger and the binocular itself becomes heavier because of the amount of glass inside the binocular. And so um, 42 is a really common uh, field glass, what we would call a field glass, something that you would be light enough to wear around your neck and, and go out in the field for the day. Mm -hmm. um, if weight is an issue for you, then you might even go down to a 32 millimeter. So with that smaller objective lens, you are giving up a little bit of light. Um, but if the weight is an issue, sometimes that's a trade-off worth having. Uh, may I go back to that first number now? So, um, the eight X eight by 42, um, is the most common birding binocular. It's a great size because it gives you a generous field of view. And as a pretty novice birder myself, I want to have the biggest field of view possible because it's hard for me as a kind of novice. Um, if I'm looking in a, in a, you know, bush full of warblers, it's, it's hard for me to aim really exactly right. So the wider the field of view, the more forgiving that is. So perhaps I put the binoculars up to my eyes and I don't have them aligned just perfectly, but with a wide field of view, 
you know, I might see that bird in the, you know, upper bit or lower bit or the right bit, and then I can make an adjustment to put him in the center. But again, the wider the field of view, the better for that purpose. And eight by 42 is really handy. Let's talk about going up and down in size as well, though. <clears throat> for marine use, if you're going to be on a boat or anything that's moving, even, um, if I'm, you know, along the shoreline and I'm going to be standing on a wooden deck that's got some movement to it, or there's a lot of people on it, so I'm getting that vibration. Mm -hmm. Going down in magnification can actually be quite helpful. So for people that come into the shop that are going on cruises to Alaska or something fun like that, lower magnification is actually better because the lower magnification um, will magnify that shake and shimmy less to allow your eye to get to crisp detail and good focus on the bird that you're looking at. Um, another thing we really like lower magnification for is um, children or anybody that's kind of infirm. Um, if you don't have a particularly steady handhold, if you're going to be birding with folks that don't have a particularly steady handhold or have not, you know, used binoculars in the past, a lower magnification can just be a little bit more forgiving. A good example for a binocular like that, if you want it to be your secondary binocular that you're just taking people on bird walks, so you'd like them to have something that they can easily use, uh, would be the Koa YF in a six by 30. It's a small binocular, it's super lightweight, it's a hundred bucks. Um, so, so that can be a nice thing stepping back. Um, if, you, if you're an advanced birder and this is gonna be your primary binocular, um, Leica has a great one, um, the Leica UltraVid comes in a 7 by 42 That's a really nice, slightly lower magnification binocular. Super wide field of view, really, you know, spectacular optically. Um, then let's talk about going up. The 8 by 42 is what you'll see most folks with in the field. The next thing above that is going to be a 10 by 42 or 10 by 50 A 10x binocular is awesome because obviously you are getting a great deal more magnification. Um, the biggest caution I would have is simply that it also magnifies vibration. So if, if you're in a place or you have a handhold where that's going to be an issue, step back to the eight. Um, for things like um, raptors, shorebirds, things where, you know, the bird's going to really be a, a good distance. If you have a 10x, you know, handy, um, that can be really helpful. And that's what we use yeah. is 10 because, you know, we, we were introduced to it during Raptor um, surveying and it was like, oh my gosh, we're that much closer, yeah. you know, and that's been really, um, really useful for us. But I did have a question about a lot of folks will see, go to like Cabela's or something like that. And they'll see like 15 by whatever binoculars. F 15 uh, by 90. Yeah. <laughs> Just like these like ridiculously and, huge numbers. And they tend to be, you know, more inexpensive than you know, like a higher end eight by something or other. And, you know, then they think like, well, it's 15, so it must be better. Um, is that the case? So I'm glad you brought that up. Um, about the, the, the highest magnification I personally would go to would be a 12. Swarovski makes a really great 12 by 50 binocular and their new NL Pure comes in a 12 by 42. They're both pretty easy to handle. I mean, I wouldn't have, I, it wouldn't be my primary binocular, but for that kind of raptor counting or things like that, the, the 12X is somewhat manageable if you have a pretty steady handhold. Those higher magnification binoculars um, that you'll find at places like Bass Pro and Cabela's, um, 
there's nothing wrong with them. For me personally, I would have to mount that binocular on a tripod to be able to get to clear focus um, because it's just magnifying vibration too much for me. Everything. Yeah, for sure. Um, so for most folks, a 12 is a big stretch. Um, so I would say never, ever buy that unless you've had a chance to try it out in the field. Um, and there are some exceptions. Um, if I have, um, I don't. But for instance, you know, we were just in San Diego. There were some beautiful vistas there, right, to look at mm -hmm. things. If I had a condo in San Diego, I probably have, you know, a great uh, set of 15 or, you know, even higher X binoculars um, to look offshore, check out you know, whales or birds or whatever. Um, but I would put those on a tripod. So again, not an everyday birding binocular, but they have their uses. The uses for those primarily are hunting and um, astronomy once you get to the 15, 20X range. So they do have a place in sport optics. Um, it's a pretty niche place. And um, I would not try it without a tripod personally. Speaking of putting putting the binoculars on a tripod, um, I, we can transition to talking about scopes since you typically see a scope on a tripod. You can't really hold a scope handheld. They've got too much too much magnification. They're 25 times, 35 times, all, like way, way up there. So um, what what's the sort of uh, thing that you want to look for in a scope when you're, like if, for your first scope, you're going to go out and, and buy? Like what sort of information do you think you need to have to decide make a good decision this is this is the scope that's going to work for me so that's an awesome question and for those folks who aren't really familiar with scopes but have only just seen them in the field i want to talk about why folks would carry multiple pieces of equipment in the field <laughs> right so i've always got my binoculars on me and i carry an 8x42 binocular that is for sure my primary optic and always will be once in a while i carry a scope as well and the reason folks will carry a scope is so that they can get additional magnification. Scopes come in a wide variety of sizes and the smaller scopes someone would pick if, if they either A, had to travel with it or B, they just didn't wanna carry a lot of weight. So I'd like to start there talking about the smaller scopes. Um, and actually we had another question on Facebook asking about scopes for lakes. Even a small scope would be good in a setting like a lake or pond or going to Yosemite or Yellowstone or whatever, right? When you're really trying to cover some distance. And I'll tell you why, even a small scope like the Coa Promenade um, 55 millimeter can zoom from 15 to 45 X. So let's just back up and think about that. <laughs> a binocular is always what we call a fixed power. If my binocular says eight by 42, 8x is its only magnification. It will never change. It's just 8x. With a scope, because you're only looking through one barrel instead of two, now we can have a zoom functionality, right? So the smaller scopes won't have as much magnification, right? So this mm -hmm. little 55 millimeter, and by 55 millimeters, I'm talking about, again, the diameter of the objective lens on that scope that's facing the bird. Um, even a little 55 millimeter scope is really tiny, easy to put in a backpack, um, you know, and, and it, it still has a tremendous amount of magnification starting at 15 X. So that's almost at its lowest setting. That's virtually double, right? The magnification mm -hmm. of my binoculars. So I've already stepped way up in magnification. So if I'm looking at something um, 
like raptors, um, obviously, you know, those, those guys can be perched far away. And if I want to really make a good ID, I really need to see detail. Um, so this is where a scope comes in. Um, even on that little scope, the zoom up goes up to 45x. So think about what a tremendous amount of magnification 45x is. Um, you can tell probably from my excitement about this, I'm really a fan of small scopes because your equipment is only as good as your willingness to use the equipment. So sometimes people, when they're checking out scopes, they're like, I want the biggest one in the store. I'm like, yeah, I can sell you that, but it's going to weigh a ton and it's huge, right? So will you ever take that out of town? Probably not. Um, it'd be good for a deck, uh, but you know, do I want to sling that tripod over my shoulder and carry it in the field for more than 10 minutes? Maybe not. Um, so again, the small um, setups I really love and, and there's some good ones. Um, the Celestron Hummingbird Scope starts at 259 bucks. That's a super duper affordable scope. It's really tiny and easy to carry. Um, for something a little more high end, that COA 55 millimeter scope I mentioned, you know, 1800 bucks and it's excellent optically. Um, but let's just say you might be interested in something a little bigger, like what you usually see in the field. So um, when you're out birding, the ones you'll most often see in the field are either around the 65 millimeter mark or the bigger ones are 85 and up. Mm -hmm. The advantage with those larger scopes is that you can actually get more magnification. So those will have a higher starting point at around 20 or 25 X. And as you zoom up on that bird, they'll go to 60, even 65 X. When we get to that high range, 60, 65 X, we're really now talking about the strength like you would find in an astronomy telescope. I mean, it's a tremendous amount of magnification. And so um, the only thing that you're giving up to go to that larger size is the fact that the thing is going to be larger in footprint and heavier in weight. Well, that's really good to know, you know, about the different uses of different size scopes, because I always think bigger is better. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when we were at San Diego, um, I didn't, I was starting to think about it a little bit more when we would seen you all there. And, you know, I, I realized that there is a place for like the 55 um, scopes. And we actually had a lady come up and I don't know, you might remember this, but there was an older lady that came up to us and she was like, I want a scope, but I want a smaller, you know, lightweight one that I can carry. And, um, I, I can't remember if it was you or Jeff that was, uh, that was describing to her that maybe the 55 might be a better candidate for her. And I just didn't even think about like, well, why wouldn't you want the biggest one? <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's great for folks that want to go hiking and maybe not carry so much weight then, you know, that that's a great option. So, um, folks want the answer about what is the best scope they should save up for. So that's a good question. Um, our top selling two scopes, like the high-end scopes, are the Swarovski ATX, that's the angled modular version. Um, and that comes with four different size objectives. You can get that in 65 is the smallest, then it jumps up to 85, then 95. And now they have the new 115 millimeter module. So there's a huge breadth of choice there. Our best sellers are probably the 65 and the 95, but that's only because that 115 is brand new. Um, so I don't have a lot of historical data on that yet. Uh, so that 115's gotta be heavy. 
it's it's big <laughs> it's big um, it's a big and heavy scope uh but wow i mean talk about light gathering capability so if yeah. the work you're doing is um dawn or dusk mm -hmm. then this matters right because the again the yeah. more light and color go down that dark barrel to your eye the better your brain can make out detail um so so there are definitely uses for that scope and um and light is a, is probably the biggest reason mm -hmm. to go up to that huge size, um, particularly for researchers um, or, or naturalists that are doing stuff, like I said, in the early morning hours. Um, yeah. Tremendous amount of difference between 65 and 115, but you're paying, your back is paying for it, right? <laughs> Carry the thing around on the tripod and, and the tripod has to be more robust as well. Um, the, other, uh, the, the other one that is really the big competitor on that high-end market is the COA scope, um, the COA fluorite scope, which it's got mm -hmm. a fluorite lens in it. Fluorite transmits light just really better than anything else. Um, it's, it's, it's definitely the big competitor. Um, that one comes in a 55, 88 or new 99 millimeter objective. Um, and those are great too. Um, I own both of these scopes. I own the um, Swarovski and a 95 millimeter, which I love. Um, and we have used a lot uh, for, for, for digiscoping, um, which is taking pictures with either a camera or cell phone attached to the front eye cup of, of that scope. Um, and it's just a wonderful scope. And then I also own and love the Koa 88 millimeter. Um, so the big difference between these two scopes um, is funny enough, not the view. I think the view is excellent, excellent, excellent in both scopes. The, the, the functionality of the uh, focus knob is different. Mm -hmm. So for the Swarovski scope, the focus is on a ring that fits around the barrel in the middle of that scope. Um, and the zoom is right next to it. So that's really nice. Um, and some people like that, right? So they can steady the scope with their left hand and with their right hand, they can adjust uh, focus and magnification right there next to each other. So if, if, if that is important to you, that's the one you're going to want to pick. For the COA scope, it's a little different. Like an older, more traditional model, it has the zoom on the eyepiece, so closest to your eye. Mm -hmm. And then um, a little further down on the objective is, is the focus. But let's talk about that focus. It has what's called a coarse focus and a fine focus. And so on that coarse focus, you get it mostly into focus and then you make fine tuning adjustments just right next to it, just right in front of it. There's a secondary wheel and, and you can really get to fine focus um, by making these just minute adjustments there. Um, and I really love that focus mechanism, <laughs> right? Um, so if, if you really like to toy with that, just really super fine, you know, uh, iterations or, or, or very specific, right. Focus, um, then that might be the scope for you. Um, so really if you're able to see scopes in person and try them out and that can happen in a storefront and it can happen, um, at a, birding festival, there's various kinds of nature symposiums around the US and in and around the world. In fact, um, that's really the best thing to do as we're in the field working with folks, we set these things up and, and you can try them out in person. 
If you're not able to do that with binoculars or scopes, I would just really think through what the primary use is going to be for the binocular or scope, what I'm looking at. If I'm looking at, you know, wolves in, in Yellowstone, that might be a little different than looking at shorebirds in Texas, right? Um, so I would, I would really think about the primary use of that and call and talk to an optics expert um, at Lansing and Sky or whoever, whatever your local optics shop is. Um, really, it's helpful to talk to somebody if you're not able to lay hands on them. And then the second question I would ask is, what is your return policy? Because you want to try them out in the field. Mm -hmm. So if I was today to buy a new pair of binoculars, I would pull those out of the box and not put the strap on them just yet, right? I'd want to take them out um, and leave all the packaging together, try them out in the field. If you don't love them, put them back in the box and exchange them for something else. Um, this is an investment you really should only be making every 5, 10, 20 years, right? And so you, you don't want to make a mistake here. Um, so a return policy is super important. And if they're just not exactly right for you, that's okay. Keep trying until you get a pair that works for you. Yeah, and, and there's, there's tons of options like Nikon, Leica, Celestron, Koa, Swaro. Like there's, it, it runs the gamut of prices and, every, and like the way they all feel. So it's, there's, there's a binocular for everyone. For, for the way your hand feels or for, for the way the focus knob feels or same with scopes. It's the same, same situation. If you can just find the one that fits you. That's absolutely right. And, you know, if you're using granddad's binoculars and they're the old world, world war two Zeiss ones from East mm -hmm. Germany, which there's a ton of them out there and optically they're all right. I mean, for their age, they're really great. Right. Yeah. But if that's what you're using, you can call and say, this is what I'm using. This is what I like about them. This is what I don't like about them. And then it makes it a little easier to narrow down that wide selection to a few that will likely work for you. Um, and on that note, hey, I just thought of something. We talked about the scopes and really what the, what the ones are that you'll want to save up your money for if you're mm -hmm. ready to make that big investment um, for your, your bird watching hobby. But can I just kind of run over the affordable ones as well? Yeah, yeah. yeah go so, for it. you know, for me, my primary money is going to be spent every time on the binocular. The scope is really going to be secondary for me just because of the type of birding that I do. Um, so there's some good affordable scopes out there. You know, they're not going to compare to the Koa and the Swarovski we talked about very favorably, but they are going to get you onto a bird, get you great magnification and they're going to be more affordable. Um, mm -hmm. So if you really just are like, you know, I keep seeing this bird and it's too far away for me to get a good idea on with my binoculars, but I'm not going to spend three grand on a scope. These might be some good options for you um, for this. And I'll run through these quickly for a small affordable scope. I'd go with a Celestron Hummingbird um, ED scope, which is about 430 bucks. Uh, for a more medium sized scope, the Vortex Diamondback in a 65 millimeter is excellent. It's only 399 bucks. So, mm. I mean, that still is a big investment, right? 400 bucks. Uh, but in the scope, you know, in the scope of, uh, yeah. no pun intended, <laughs> uh, in the range <laughs> of prices for spotting scopes, it's, it's, it's a lower end scope. Um, if I wanted a larger scope, that same one, um, the, the Vortex Diamondback also comes in an 85 millimeter and it's 499. So that's three good examples of scopes that will do the job for you that are under $500. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of us, when we think about scopes, we think about those we have seen in the field that we know are a few thousand dollars. Um, and while those are wonderful investments, if you have that kind of cash on hand, 
Um, you don't have to make that huge investment to get a scope and to be seeing some of these things that are a bit further away. Uh, for under 500 bucks, um, you can get into a scope that will that will do the trick. Yeah. yeah, that's good to know. Well, and and transitioning from the binocular to the scopes, you're going from eight eight by forty two with your binocular, and you even that uh, the diamond back was is that is that a twenty five that the um magnification the twenty five magnification for that. So you're oh yeah yeah you're, it'll you're, go you're I tripling I think, your yeah your magnification exactly right. I think that it's twenty x to sixty x right around there. Yeah. Um. So I mean, just a tremendous amount of magnification. So um, talking about all these different brands, um, we oftentimes hear about like, oh, you know, I have a pair of Leicas that are 20 years old or something. And this little piece of it is, you know, messed up. And then, you know, they'll say, oh, I sent it off to Leica and they sent me a brand new pair of binoculars to replace it. What kind of um, what kind of repairs do these companies offer in warranties? So that's a great question. And I'm going to save everybody some money right now with, with this bit of knowledge. Um, eye cups are always going to be the first thing that breaks on your binoculars. And that is okay because they are designed to be pulled off by the user and replaced. Anything like the um, focus wheel, the hinge, the center hinge, or the eye cup, which is the bit on the part of the binocular that you put up against your eyes. That's called the eye cup. Um, these are manual components. They're going to get wear and tear. They're going to have grit. They are designed to be fixed. So don't throw away your binoculars if the eye cups fall off or if the center hinge gets loose. All of this can be fixed. Um, currently, most binocular warranties run 10 years against defects in materials and worksmanship. There are some that are no-fault warranties as well, like Vortex, uh, but really most are kind of a 10-year deal. But regardless, none of these companies are trying to make a profit center on repairs. The manufacturers are just trying to keep you happy with their brand so that the next time you buy binoculars, you're going to go to the same brand. And people are very brand loyal in their optics normally. Um, so if your eye cups fall off or break or, or just seem grimy and crunchy as you're rolling them up and down, <laughs> You can send them to us at Land, Sea, and Sky and we'll replace them, but we charge you because they charge us, right? So mm -hmm. we're, we're charging you too. Um, if you're not shy about learning how to take those off, clean the threading there and put the new one on, you can call the manufacturer. They will almost always send you a new pair for free. If only one is broken, <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble here with the manufacturers. If only one is broken... <laughs> Go ahead and ask for two, get the pair, because if you're going to go to the trouble of making this contact and having them ship something out, mm -hmm. just go ahead and get two. If you only need one right now, put the other one in the binocular um, field bag and you'll have it for next time. Uh, but go ahead and get a pair. They will usually send them out for free to you, the end user. They charge me, so I charge you. So um, we will, we tell everybody that when they call, like, sure, send in your binoculars, we'll replace the eye cups, but um, it's not cheap. It's 30 bucks <laughs> per eye cup. <laughs> so uh, trying to call the manufacturer first is usually a good first move. Um, the other things I mentioned that are easy to get out of um, whack are the hinge or hinges, depending on the make and model of your binocular. Mm -hmm. um, if those get sand in them, that's, you know, that that can be bothersome it's it's not really hurting anything but but it can be kind of a pain in the neck and also the lubricant can break down over time and make those a little wonky and droopy 
and that can be fixed, but that does need to go into a service center. Um, if, if you've had those binoculars 10 years or less, send them into the manufacturer. If it's been more than 10 years, check with a manufacturer. Um, they may not want to take them in. And in that case, a shop like ours will, will do that work for you. The other major complaint in repairs is called collimation or alignment. Hmm. If those binoculars are, for instance, left in a hot car, that can compromise the cement that's holding the lenses and prisms into place. If one of those just slips the tiniest bit due to that cement becoming a little gooey, you have changed now the alignment of that lens. And what you'll find is that you can focus the left side or the right side, but not both at the same time. This can be fixed, but it needs to go to a professional. It cannot be fixed in the field. It needs to go into a shop so that it can be put on something called a collimation bench. We'll shoot lasers down both of those barrels and align them properly and re-cement everything. Um, so that's another thing that called the manufacturer first and us as a secondary source. And that's called collimation or alignment. Um, also, if that binocular gets dropped, um, banged in the side of a boat, you know, <laughs> things happen. <laughs> they're pretty sturdy. They're, they're designed to be used in the field. But if you knock loose a lens or a prism, it can be an issue, but that issue can be fixed. Depending on the price of your binoculars, it might, we might say, hey, this is going to cost 150 bucks to fix and your binoculars only worth 100. So let's not do that. Let's make that investment into some new binoculars. But if the value of your binoculars is $500 or more, we'll usually recommend fixing that. Okay. So um, you mentioned the, the co cost of the binoculars, $150 binoculars not, not needing to be repaired. Um, so somebody asked us um, a question about um, if they have one of those, uh, like the relatively inexpensive, the 100 150 100 125 whatever dollar binoculars that are pretty low in there. And they are looking at upgrading their optics, going with either a, a better pair of binoculars, one of those five or six hundred dollar pair of binoculars, or a scope. H how do they decide which route to go? Like to to go with a good, go with a, a mid range or a high range scope, or go with the high range binoculars and and stick with the um, the lower range binoculars. Yeah, that's a tricky one. And I would say it really depends on um, primary use, right? Mm -hmm. So again, what I would recommend for somebody that was, you know, working as a guide at Yellowstone, and they were looking across these far distances with a crowd of people, they're going to need a scope. Uh, the vast majority of folks that are birding are going to want a better pair of binoculars. Okay. Um, for me, I, I think, you know, for 98% for of folks that come in the shop asking that question, um, we would take them physically outside in front of our shop, which is really near downtown Houston. So we get some pretty hilarious birds there, as you can imagine, uh, not the stuff you'd normally be birding for, but pigeons, white winged doves. We do have red vented bulbuls in front of the shop sometimes, which is fun, um, an unfortunate <laughs> invasive species, but really cool to look at. Um, so we would take um, scopes and binoculars outside. We would encourage them to bring their existing binoculars to do a little compare and contrast. Mm -hmm. And we'd really have them look at a bird through their binoculars, look at a bird through a slightly better set of binoculars and kind of going up into the price ranges um, which tend to be 100, 250, 500, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000. That's kind of the breaks that are kind mm -hmm. of normal. Um, 
if your binoculars are more than a few years old, you'd be surprised at how good a $250 pair of binoculars is um, compared to what you're using. So there's some really pretty solid low-end binoculars, but of course, crispness and clarity and edge-to-edge -edge sharpness just gets better and better as you go up in those price ranges. And then we would take a look through the scopes. Um, for me and most of the people that I know, scopes are gonna be secondary and, and that would be a secondary investment. I'd almost always put my money into the binocular. Okay. Okay, and then, um, so if one was to, to buy a scope and they wanted to take pictures with that, because that is one of my greatest joys at this point is as uh, coescoping. Um, what's the easiest uh, digiscoping setup? So I'm glad you asked that. And you have two real excellent choices. So you can go by manufacturer of your scope in some instances. So if you have the scopes by Koa or Swarovski, for example, they make phone adapters that you know are going to fit right out of the box and that is the just easy no-brainer way to go they're universal phone adapters um, but the the portion that fits onto the eyepiece of the scope is built for those particular scopes and so that's an easy no-brainer kind of way to do it um, so again for koa swarovski miopta has a good one um, some of these companies are building their own and, and that's awesome. And that's a no brainer way to go. Um, the second choice you have, if you have a, a brand that I didn't mention, or if you have an older model scope, um, is there's a company called Phone Scope, um, which we really love. And if you order a Phone Scope adapter, you're going to want to call in, <laughs> talk to <laughs> us, and tell us, and even maybe send pictures by email. We want to know exactly what phone you have. And I don't mean iPhone 11, I mean iPhone 11 Pro Max or iPhone 11 Mini. I mean, I need the whole thing. I need exactly what phone you have so that that adapter will fit. And then there's a second adapter that will screw onto it that fits onto the scope. And I need to know exactly what eyepiece is on your exact scope. So for instance, I have the, you know, COA with the TE11WZ eyepiece. And so once we have those two bits of knowledge, we can put together a phone scope adapter for you um, that's going to fit your phone and your scope. Um, and that's another great way to do it. Um, the third way, which we don't love as much, but is possible, is there are universal adapters. Uh, the, there's three that we carry in the store. One is by a company uh, from the Czech Republic called Neopta. They make a nice phone scope adapter and a really nice carbon fiber tripod for 300 bucks. So there's a <laughs> shout out to Neopta there. Um, they're doing some good work in those areas. That's a Neopta universal phone adapter, which is about $72. And um, their, their carbon fiber tripod is super cheap for carbon tri fiber tripods and, and sturdy enough to hold one of the larger scopes. So we like that. Um, the other universal ones that we like are, if you have a pretty large phone, you might consider the Celestron NexYZ, which is spelled N-E-X-Y-Z, little <laughs> play on words there, NexYZ, um, phone adapter. It's a pretty robust one, right? But for bigger phones, you kind of need that. Um, and then the one that we just cannot keep in stock because they sell out the second we get a box of them in is the Orion Steady Picks. Um, it's the cheapest one. It's 25 bucks. It works great for smaller phones. Um, and 
and the great thing about these digital phone adapters um, that are uh, variable, that, that are universal fits, are that you can use them in any kind of optic, right? So they're mm -hmm. great for digiscoping, taking phone, uh, video, or pictures. Uh, and it also kind of gives you a screen. So if you're, you know, with a whole family and one scope, it's nice to have that kind of screen to put on the eyepiece so that everybody can see what's going on. Um, but they're also great for microscopes. They're okay on binoculars. If you can put your binocular on a tripod, then you can put it over one, one piece of the binocular. That's much more difficult, but possible. Um, I, I would want that to be my primary uh, way, way to use it, but, but it's a good secondary use. Um, and they'll work for astronomy telescopes as well. So really anything with a circular eyepiece, these things will work on, and that makes them really versatile and a lot of fun. Yeah, and you bring up a, a good uh, another use of digiscoping. I, you know, I really enjoy taking pictures of birds through my digiscope. Sometimes I'll get better pictures than Eric does with his DSLR, which is uh, one of my biggest points of pride. Um, <laughs> but also, they really tend to be good for like groups. Um, we've been going out to you know our area. We have Haystack Rock with uh, tufted puffins, and during COVID, I didn't really want folks to use my my spotting scope. Um, because of the cleaning and all that, that, that it would require. So I put my phone on the, the scope and just show people so then they could look at it on my phone uh, a yeah, little bit they, easier. They can, they can stand two feet back from your phone and look and see this, whatever your screen on your phone is, like three inch by two inch or four inch by two inch, whatever it is, yeah. and be able to see there's a puffin right there in the middle of the <laughs> screen, and I don't have to get up right right on it. And it's, and, and it's great for kids, too, that that you can't lift the kid up high enough to look through the scope or they want to grab onto it and shake it around and move, move the scope around. Yeah. They can, they can stand back two feet and look at it and be like, Oh, there's, there's a bird right there. <laughs> a lot of purposes for them. That's exactly right. And, um, I just want to mention one other thing that's off the birding topic. Sorry. Um, but <laughs> as you are doing that, like using it as a screen, I mean, isn't that really truly the best way if you've got, family and friends with you, right? Because everybody mm -hmm. can see live what's happening. Um, another thing that we really loved um, using the digiscoping adapter for was that purpose, a sharing kind of thing during the solar eclipse in 20, was it 2018? Mm -hmm. And we have an annular eclipse. So not a total eclipse, but a really cool looking, but you'll, you know, you can't look at it with the naked eye because there'll be uh, light around the edges. Um, so there's an annular eclipse coming up in 2023. Um, you can get a solar filter that goes over the objective lens of your scope, put the digiscoping adapter on the front. And again, now everybody can see it. And it's a really beautiful use of a scope um, hmm. for that purpose. And then in 2024, we have a total solar eclipse that will be coming um, up out of Mexico and towards New York. Um, so, so those are, you know, there's just so many great uses both for the binoculars and scopes, but also um, the digiscoping adapter and, and using that as a screen um, is, is a really helpful use um, to, to allow multiple people to look through that scope. Totally. Yeah. And for folks who have trouble looking through scopes, we, we find that when we're, we're out birding with non-birders or, you know, beginner birders that a lot of folks have issues using the scope that, you know, we try to help troubleshoot. Um, but it really helps to have, you know, the screen on there and it's like, it's really easy because everybody's used to looking at a screen. <laughs> 
You know, you're absolutely right. And on that note, whenever you get new binoculars, a new spotting scope, especially if you're going to try digiscoping, I really want to encourage everybody um, to practice in their own backyard or patio or living room or whatever, um, because it's really hard. Um, I mean, intuitively, you would think that it would be easy to aim binoculars, but that's not the case. It's really quite <laughs> difficult. Um, and the same thing goes with spotting scopes, particularly the angled ones, right? There's a straight scope and an angled scope. It, they both work the same way, really. Um, but but either way, it's, it's tremendously difficult to learn how to aim them. And so um, my recommendation to folks is before they leave for their vacations and before they go on a guided birding trip, really practice with those binoculars. It's not you, it's just the way it is. It's difficult, it's difficult to learn how to aim them. It's gonna be easier if, you'll, if you're in the backyard and you can say, okay, I'm gonna look at the feeder, right? And it's stationary. And so I can, I can really learn and teach my brain to be a little bit intuitive in the aiming of that binocular. You know, all of our faces are shaped a little differently. Um, so how that binocular sets against my eyes is going to affect the pitch, you know, and, and the angles at which I'm pointing those binoculars and practice truly does make perfect. Um, so if you get a pair of binoculars and you're frustrated because you're not able to get on birds, um, just know that a little practice will go a long way. And if you'll just use those perhaps every morning or every evening before you go to bed, um, you're going to get it, but it does take a little bit of brain training right? To be able to aim those properly. Um, and it can be a little vexing. You're so excited to get a fancy new pair of binoculars and then you get out in the field and you can't get on a bird. That's frustrating, but just know you're not alone. It requires a little bit of practice and eventually um, it will be intuitive, but it is not intuitive at first. So patience, patience, patience. And, and on that, um, so we were hoping to ask you also about what are some troubleshooting issues that with use of binoculars. Like I notice a lot that folks, um, don't have the eye relief, uh, pulled up when they don't have glasses and, you know, I'll hear like, Oh, I can't use these. And so I suggest that as, you know, like, well, maybe try, you know, adjusting the eye relief and that'll help. What other issues are there that, um, that are pretty common for folks? So Hannah, I'm so glad you said that because, you know, I've only been involved at Land, Sea and Sky for about six years. Before I came to work here, nobody ever told me that the eye cups went up and down. I'd never heard that before, right? So never in my lifetime for the previous 47 years had I been using my binoculars properly. I mean, how frustrating. <laughs> it should come with a giant red tag on it, right? That says, lift these up if you're these not using glasses. Down. Yeah. So um, for the, the listeners that don't know what we're talking about, the bit of the binocular, the eye cup that's closest to your face should be rolled or flipped depending on if it's rubber or or plastic it should be up without glasses usually or down with glasses and then you can put the binocular right up against your glasses and that's called eye relief so play around with that until you get it to where it works best for you for me no matter what the binocular the first thing i do is just twist that eye cup all the way up as tall as it will go and that works best for me and my face the other big ones are a lot of people will suffer from seeing um, dark crescent shapes on the edge of the field of view. And they think that it's just them or the way they're using the binoculars. But in fact, that means that the interpupillary distance, the distance between your two pupils has to match the distance between those two barrels that you're looking down. If you're getting those dark crescents on the edges, you just don't have that hinge exactly right. 
So keep playing around with that hinge, uh, making those barrels closer together and further apart until you get a cohesive image. I love in movies when you see um, an image of someone looking through binoculars, they always try to make it like two circles that are just mm -hmm. bar barely merged like a Venn diagram, but that's not in fact how it looks in real life, right? It should be a circle or an oval. And it's gonna depend on where your point of focus is. If you're focused on something quite close, um, you might actually have a little bit different setting than if you're focused on a raptor far away. Uh, but regardless, um, you want a cohesive image. And if you have those little very annoying crescents on the outside edge, keep messing around with that interpupillary distance, moving the hinge back and forth until you resolve that because that can be really vexing. And it's one of the hardest things to teach children to do is how to accommodate the distance between their two eyes. Um, but eventually they'll get it. Just have them keep using binoculars, you know, and keep <laughs> messing around with that. And eventually they'll, they'll get a feel for it. Um, so I think that covers most of the issues um, in the actual use of binoculars. May we talk about the strap that comes with a binocular? So um, a binocular is gonna come in its box with a field bag or case a strap, something called a rain guard, which is just a little plastic or rubberized piece that attaches to the strap but covers the, the eye cups so that it prevents grit and things from getting down there on those eye lenses. And then um, sometimes objective covers or little covers that go on the end of the binoculars. All of this is really optional to put on your binoculars. Some people love all that gear, some people hate it. Um, I usually use just a regular strap that comes with a binocular in the box, and that can go around your neck, but over the course of time, that can become uncomfortable. So there are some workarounds for that, including wearing it like a crossbody bag, so just on one shoulder, and it requires a strap that go, is pretty long, um, but these are all adjustable, and usually, not always, but usually the strap in the bag um, will work either around the neck or in a crossbody fashion. The other options that you have for a very small binocular are there are wrist straps that you can get. So this is just so if you drop the binocular, it's not going to crash to the ground and break. Um, but more popular, something that you see in the field that's an alternative that's sold separately is something called a bino harness. A bino harness works like a backpack. It goes across both shoulders so that you have gotten the weight off of the back of your neck and instead are now distributing it across the shoulders. And so if your neck bothers you or back, um, or if you're gonna be birding for a lengthy day, it's oftentimes more comfortable for to use a bino harness so that you're distributing that weight across both shoulders and getting it off of the back of your neck. That's, so we use a binocular harness. We, we transitioned away from the neck strap to a binocular harness a, a, a couple years ago. And for us, it's just been, it's just been awesome. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, cause like, like we said, we, we use the heavier, um, the, the 10, the 10 by binoculars. Um, we, I had an old pair of Eagle optics that I was using those 10 by 42. Um, we've transitioned over to the Koas now. Um, but they're, they're just so much heavier than the eight buys and, it's it is very nice having that weight distributed across a much larger area rather than just this little one inch strip around your neck that you're right. carrying two or three pounds. What, what I, I don't know how much they weigh. That they, they feel heavy sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> especially after six hours of like out in the field. Like, but with the with the harness, it it definitely makes things different. But it takes more time to put on, and it's it's more uh, more cumbersome to get yourself ready. It's, 
I guess it's like 30 more seconds, but it's like more cumbersome <laughs> to get ready to go birding than just the strap that you just like toss around your neck and go. That's right. Uh, there's an ease of use to the strap that's really handy. Mm -hmm. uh, but the thing that I love about the bino harness is a what you mentioned that it distributes the weight, which is nice. Also, it really carries the binocular then closer to your body and hugs it in closer to the body. So if you know you're jumping across the stream, you're not banging that 28 ounce binocular into yourself, right? It's it's yeah. a little more stable. Um, so it the bino harness really does have its place in the field. Um, if 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 you're someone who who really uh, is out for more than an hour, I would say you really want to think about investing in a bino harness. Well, Marcy, thank you so much for sharing all of this great information with us. Um, it's been really helpful. And I know I've learned a lot about binoculars and scopes um, over this this brief time. Um, and we really appreciate you, you spending the time with us. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to see you in per person because I want to come see those tufted puffins. <laughs> You'll have to come up. <laughs> hey, thanks a bunch. So we hope we were able to um, demystify some stuff about optics and really clarify, you know, your options that you have when mm -hmm. you're looking to purchase, um, you know, binoculars or scope or whatever it may be, because it is a huge investment for most folks and you want to make sure you're making the right choice. Yeah. So then, you know, the next 30 years without optics is, <laughs> is going to be a happy, um, successful time. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think Marcy did a great job of explaining any of that stuff that you wanted to hear. We, most of those questions came from our listeners. Mm -hmm. Um, we, we sourced them from our social media and from our emails we also had a handful of questions we just wanted to ask anyways ourselves. Yeah, sure. Um, but that's that's kind of where all those questions came from. So I'm glad we were able to get some input from from the community as to what what is confusing about optics and what what you need to know in order to move forward with your your optics life. And if you see Marcy at a festival in the future, or you just you know are in Houston and want to go into the store, feel free to ask her or any of her representatives questions. Um, no questions, dumb. You know, when it comes yeah. to this stuff, well, I mean, in general, no questions. In general, there's no, there's no dumb question, um, but particularly about optics. It's a, it's a very... Um, it's a complicated yeah. topic, and we, I, at least I feel like I still don't really understand it. Not that that's Marcy's fault at all, just <laughs> how my <laughs> just brain works, I guess. Um, but, you know, we learned a lot, and we really appreciate Marcy sitting down with us for this. Yeah. So thank, thank you, Marcy, and then thank you all for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and or learned something new. Please, please, please rate, review, and subscribe to Apple Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Music, and anywhere else that you listen to us. If you'd like to connect with us on the socials, you can follow us at Hannah Goes Birding and Eric Goes Birding on Instagram. You can follow us at We Go Birding on Twitter. Um, our Facebook page is at Hannah and Eric Go Birding. Our TikTok is Hannah and Eric Go Birding. Yep. Um, you can email us at Hannah and Eric Go Birding at gmail.com. You can also follow us, follow us on our website, um, www.gobirdingpodcast.com. Um, tell us what you like, tell us what you hated, and share us with your friends.